Well, as most of you would know, here on Sunday mornings, we have been teaching through the Gospel of John, and today, kind of bittersweet, we come to the close of this series. And from the beginning of our teachings in John, we have been emphasizing this theme that John gives us, the purpose statement in John 20, of life in the name of Jesus. And as I've said many times, probably every time I've taught, John is not giving us a biography or an exhaustive account of the life and works of Jesus, but he is being so specific in the stories that he has recorded. He's handpicked these, he's curated them, or if you want, he's telling the story of Jesus from a certain point of view. And John has an agenda, he has a purpose, and what he wants for us is that we would experience what he has experienced, life in the name of Jesus. Now, John connects what we believe, what we trust in, what we center our lives around to the quality of life that we experience. Because each of us is believing in something. We're centering our lives around someone or something, and that someone or something is leading us somewhere. It's doing something in us. It's forming a certain character in us. And it's leading us either deeper into life or deeper further into death, now and forever. I don't know if you ever read, um, and I can't actually remember what book this is from, so maybe we can put this in the notes later, but C.S. Lewis had this incredible insight when he said, you have never met a mere mortal. He says, you know, things are mortal, but humans, you know, either we meet people that are on this trajectory to be the most glorious creatures, that if we saw them here and now, we would be tempted to fall down and worship them, or creatures on a trajectory that if we saw them now, they would be more horrific than our worst nightmares. This is the trajectory that every single human being is on, deeper, further into life in the image of God and what God has created us for, or dehumanizing further and further into death. But God's desire for humans, his intention for humans, is that we would have life in his name and that we would take hold of Jesus and we would cultivate this life to become what he created us to be. See, you might have the perfect plan for your life, a great education, a career, marriage, family, but if these things don't happen, or don't happen in the way we imagine, something inside of you dies. And I'll never forget hearing Ray Ortland say that these experiences are like these many prophetic words whispering to you, don't you see where this is going? These many, many deaths reoccurring again and again are an indication that you are on a path to death to meaninglessness, but Jesus comes that we might have life. And so this morning, I would like each of us to consider, for the last time in this teaching series, what are you believing in? What are you centering your life around? What are you trusting in?
And do we realize that how we answer that question is a matter of life and death? John's purpose and the purpose of this gospel gives us the opportunity again and again to ask this question, a question that our culture wants to distract us from asking, what are you living for? Are you experiencing meaning, purpose, fullness, peace? John's gospel gives us that opportunity to ask ourselves again and again, am I really living? Am I experiencing a kind of love, hope, and peace in following Jesus that I commend to others? Do I have life in Jesus' name? Now this morning, I simply want to reconsider one last time John's theme and purpose, and then I want to just kind of leave us with a few questions. So from the outset of this gospel, John has made it clear that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who has existed in loving, excuse me, existed in the loving presence of God the Father from all eternity past, who has come into the world to make known or reveal the abundant love and goodness of the Father in order to bring humanity into the knowledge and love of the Father. And John has gone at great lengths to emphasize this offer of life in Jesus' name. Just think about even the first chapter, what we often call the prologue, right? He talks about his life, Jesus, is the light of all humanity. He is the divine spark, if you will. He is, he says, full of glory. He is full of grace and truth. In John 10.10, we have Jesus make this incredible claim that he has come that they, his sheep, or specifically his people, might have life and have it to the full, to have it in abundance or overflowing. So whether in sermon, sign, or personal conversation, Jesus, in this gospel, demonstrates God's overflowing goodness and abundance that he has for humanity. Whether it's seen in the bounty of the best wine in his first miracle, to the living water that he offers to satisfy thirsty souls, or bread from heaven that gives life to the world, or light for the world, because it sits in darkness. The gate that leads to salvation, the shepherd that leads us into eternal life, the resurrection who brings us out of death into life, the way, the truth, the life that leads to the Father, or the fruitful vine that produces fruit in us. See, what this book offers us again and again is life. Deep Lasting life, identity, power, and purpose in and through Jesus. In this message that John has put together, he really is offering us a deep identity with Jesus as we abide in him, as we are transformed into his image. He offers us identity, Christ-likeness. 
he emphasizes a new power, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to empower us what we cannot do on our own, which is bear fruit for God. And finally, purpose, which is to be caught up in Jesus' mission of forgiveness and life to the world. So now that we have been brought into the life of God, we who are disciples of Jesus are those who are to take up the mission of Jesus to do what Jesus did. And we talked about this again and again in, in our teachings through John's gospel, but we are to do what Jesus did. What did Jesus do? Reveal the Father. He revealed the Father and invited those around him into the deep love of God. You know, John, in his first epistle, I feel like he gives us this beautiful interpretive kind of key for his gospel. And I've thought about this verse often as I've been studying the gospel of John, where he writes, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. See, John's definition of life is deep. It is nothing less than the very life and love of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, permeating our whole being. It is the same great life and love of God that sent the beloved Son into the world. So because of that, and I'm using John 1, 4, 11 through 12 to interpret this, because of that, life as defined in John's gospel is not and cannot be experienced in a personalized, individualized, static way. And what I mean by that is just a private piety or just a Jesus and me type of salvation. Scripture does not know anything of that. I'll take it even further, though, nor can it be confined to a group of people whose interest and concern lie solely within the group. Examples of this would be, sometimes we see this in a church, a church that is just insular, its concern is only for itself and its own well-being, maybe for its own piety or own protection from culture. Or maybe it's not just the church, maybe it's just your kind of insular group within the church, or maybe it's your own family, right? We see our own families as our little mini private kingdoms that we are called to protect from the world. And of course, there is an aspect to this of stewardship over our church community, our family. But Leslie Newbegin reminds us a church that exists only for itself and its own enlargement is a witness against the gospel. That is heavy. It is a witness against the gospel. People turned in on themselves that is selfishness. That is the exact opposite of God's self-giving, self-sacrificial love. Newbegin says in another place, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, 
but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. You know, it's an interesting pattern that we see in the biblical text where any time a prophet or an individual is brought into the presence of God, I'm thinking specifically right now about Isaiah 6, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple with glory. Remember there, Isaiah sees the angelic beings around the throne calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. He has this vision of God seated on the throne, a vision of God's kingdom filling the whole earth. He has this experience where he realizes that he is unclean. God cleanses him, and what's the next thing that happens? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. See, Isaiah is this picture of this brought in to the divine presence, given a vision of God's kingdom, of his power, of the future, of the cosmos, that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth, that the whole world will be God's good kingdom. But Isaiah isn't invited, just stay here, Isaiah, and be comfortable and secure. He says, go. And he is a messenger to the nations. The church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. See, life in John's gospel is in deep connection with Jesus, caught up in his life and mission to bring forgiveness and life to the world. The aim of this gospel is that our lives individually and collectively become conduits, vessels through which God's great love and life can be brought to the lost and broken world that God so dearly loves. Just as the resurrected Jesus says to his disciples, just as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. You know, I was thinking about this and I, you know, contemplating whether or not to mention it. But you know, John 21, 25 is such an interesting little passage here. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Okay, so fascinating idea here, right? That the synoptic gospels, that John's gospels, that even some of these stories that we have within the rest of the New Testament don't even scratch the surface of all that Jesus did. But I also wonder whether or not John meant this to be fuel for us to continue the story of God. I mean, think about what this gospel is. This gospel is this message that comes to each of us, but not just so that we keep it, but in a sense so that we ourselves continue to live out the gospel. That we would do what Jesus did for us in every generation And so the story of God, the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel continues again and again. That Jesus meets individuals 
personally. That he meets them in a transformative way and gives life to them in his name. But he makes them conduits through which they offer life to the world. And that story has continued for 2,000 years. People meet Jesus through the personal witness and experience of God's people. Come meet a person who told me everything I ever did, the woman at the well said. She was a witness of having her thirst quenched. And you are a witness. You are a disciple of Jesus, one in whom the living God dwells, one in whom living water flows in order that you now might offer life in Jesus' name. This is the purpose of this gospel. I think back to our first study in John where we talked about how the inner life of God Father, Son, and Spirit has been poured out into the world in order to bring us into the inner life of God. And I don't know if this does anything for you, but for me, for some reason, this picture of these cascading waterfalls is how I see it, where it's Father, Son, and Spirit pouring out into God's beloved people. And it's God's beloved people loving one another and pouring out into the world. That's the picture that we get, that God's love continues. And as John says, actually, God's love is made complete when it goes beyond us. Not when we dam it up and keep it for ourselves, but when we channel it to those around us. See, Jesus' disciples, those who have life in his name, are an outward-facing community engaged in the mission of God to bring love, to bring forgiveness, and to bring life to the world. Michael Goheen, in his book, Abide and Go, he says this, this life is experienced not merely individualistically, but communally. As branches in the vine, God's mission is to engender a family of children who share the divine DNA. That's the identity and behavior. And thereby participate in the family business as a unified, holy community, sharing in the unity, holiness, and mission of the divine family. You can understand how John in his epistle would go to the lengths to say, look, if the love of God isn't being manifest in you to love your brother, you don't know God. You don't get it. Because to know God is to share the family DNA. It's to bear the image. It's that other people look at us See our works and glorify who? Our Father in heaven. There is an identity and a connection, a family likeness that we share because we participate in the identity and behavior of our God. Life according to John's gospel is only found then 
in participation with Jesus, in his identity and mission to the world. And I would go so far as to say there is no participation in Jesus without participation in his identity and his mission to the world. As we participate in Jesus, in his self-giving, in his life-giving mission to the world, we become more like him because we're tethered to him, we're tied to him. Like branches to the vine, and so we experience life in his name. So I'll ask, are we with Jesus? Do we give our amen to John's gospel? Is this true of us? Do we have life in his name? The theme and purpose of John's gospel is evangelistic. It is missional in nature. It's about the love of God that broke into this world in the person of Jesus in order to rescue and redeem humanity, permeating people with his life and love in order to continually offer forgiveness, love, and life to the world through them. But John's vision and conviction of how that evangelism and mission happens is through deep, ongoing intimacy with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that manifests itself in continuing the mission of Jesus to bring love and forgiveness and life to the world. Theologian Michael Goheen, he summarizes the main theme or purpose of John's gospel is like this, and I love this, and I've been thinking about this for weeks. Abide and go. Abide and go. I think sometimes we make the mistake of doing one or the other, don't we? We think, oh, I just abide. It's just my personalized relationship with Jesus, and I'll just put roots down there. No, 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 it's abide and go. And the picture of this is fascinating. John is taking up this theme actually found in Psalm 80, where God's vine is planted in the land of Israel, and it spreads to the ends of the earth. And this is the mission that Jesus has taken up to be God's fruitful vine. And that as we are his branches rooted and grounded in him, we spread to the ends of the earth with Jesus' mission, with his life for the world, offering life in his name. Abide and go. Abide in Jesus and witness his forgiveness. Abide in Jesus and tell others what he has done. Abide in Jesus and serve those around you. Abide and go. That is the mission, theme, and purpose of John's gospel. So again, I ask, are we with Jesus? Are we abiding? Do we want to want to be with Jesus? And I don't mean this as this condemnation like, oh, you must not be with Jesus. John's message, it's an invitation, right? Scripture is given us, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Scripture is given to us not so we can be like, good, cool, all right, we're all good, I'm fine, doing great, keep going. 
I mean, sometimes, but usually, I don't know about you, but for me, Scripture's like, no, wrong way, go this way. <laughs> to be honest, right? I'm being recreated, deprogrammed from who Char is and what Char thinks is right, and being reprogrammed in the identity and mission of Jesus. So are we with Jesus? Can we say, okay, God, I've been abiding, but I'm not going. Will you take me forward? I want to experience deep life in your name. And that is found in abiding and in the going. Now, as we wrap up teaching through this gospel and on this theme, I want to speak specifically to those who might say, I don't think I am experiencing life in Jesus' name. And maybe for the last year and a half or so, you've been sitting there and just feeling like, I don't know. I don't know. Every time I hear that, do I have life in the name of Jesus? I can't say. I'm concerned that maybe I don't. Well, I believe that Peter the Apostle serves as an example of that here in chapter 21. And I just want to look at three things quickly. Jesus, of course, in this story, is on a mission to restore Peter. Remember Peter there, uh, when Jesus was arrested in the garden, um, we have this story how Peter and John follow Jesus at a distance, and Peter is brought into the courtyard of the high priest while Jesus is on trial. And there, he's confronted by a servant girl. And basically, three times, Peter has this um, opportunity to confess, yes, I'm with Jesus. And three times, he denies that he has any connection or association with Jesus. This is intentional. Peter is not abiding. He has no connection with Jesus. He says so himself. And so Jesus here is on a mission, I believe, to reconnect Peter to life in his name, to bring him in, which is so beautiful to think about our God. Right? We've seen story after story after story of God's pursuit of humans. But look at God's pursuit of one disciple who failed him, who denied him, who said, I have no abiding presence with you, Jesus. And look how Jesus pursues him. John gives us this story intentionally. And I just want to point out, I think for Peter and for us, Jesus requires, or there are three aspects that have to be present in our life if we are to continually abide in Jesus. And that is obedience to his word. That is repentance or allowing Jesus to confront our sin and failure and to redirect it, and finally, to be surrendered to the will and the ways of Jesus. Now first, obedience, right? We have this story where Peter has gone back to fishing, and he takes a whole grip of disciples with him, right? kind of feels like nothing's happening. He's had some connection with Jesus, but it has not been direct. And so he's, all right, whatever, I'm going fishing. Who can blame Peter, right? He goes back to what he has known. But the fascinating thing is they fish all night, it says, and they caught how much? Zero. Or literally in the Greek, nothing. And John seems to be emphasizing this truth. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
There's a connection here. Jesus has called his disciples to abide in him, but here is a disciple that is not abiding, and he is fishing all night. He was a professional fisherman, but he can't catch a single thing. But look, as the story goes on, at Jesus' command, in obedience to the word of Jesus, what happens? Peter's nets are overflowing. It's a picture of the fruitfulness and abundance that we produce as we abide and obey the word of Jesus. Disciples must obey because obeying is part of abiding and abiding is the only way we bear fruit. So the question then, life in Jesus' name is lived in obedience to his words, his works and ways. As disciples, are we obeying? Or maybe even taking it a little bit further, where is Jesus calling you to obey today? Not tomorrow, not next week, not when things calm down. Where is Jesus saying today, obey my word? The second character that we see is repentance. As a Christian, Jesus must be able to confront your sin and your failure. As I said a moment ago, the Bible is not meant to, as Christians, I'll say specifically, to get us a big fat pat on the back. That's not the purpose of it. It is for transformation, to make us wise unto salvation, to form us in the way of Jesus. And so as disciples, think about this, Jesus was not satisfied with just a general, Peter, are we good? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me more than these? Oh, Jesus, I will never do that. All others might forsake you, I will never forsake you. And there Jesus is, straight up. You love me more than these? Really? Let's talk about it. And if that's not enough, he goes on to the second denial. Peter, do you love me? And it says that the third time, Peter, do you love me? It like sinks in for Peter what's happening here. Oh, this is about the denial. And Jesus confronts Peter's sin and failure head on. And what does he do? He reconciles with Peter and he redirects Peter. He redirects him in his, in his identity. He didn't say, okay, Peter, time out for a while. Okay, Peter, there's going to be some distance between you and me now. We'll have to work on our relationship. I mean, it's powerful Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. He pulls Peter right into his own very identity. I am the great shepherd of the sheep. Peter, be my under-shepherd. Do my work. Live in my identity. 
As disciples of Jesus, we must allow Jesus to confront our sin. We must be very open to God, transparent about our sins and failures, bringing them before God, trusting that He's kind, gracious, and compassionate, that He will bring reconciliation and He will bring us deep into His identity and his mission as we continually repent. Martin Luther, Protestant theologian said, for the Christian, all of life is repentance. Just continually turning from what we know, from what we think is right, being corrected and redirected by our gracious Lord. The life of a disciple is to be marked by repentance. And so I will ask, what might you need to turn from today? Where do you need to repent? And the last one, surrender. It's interesting, as Jesus, just a story that John records is so fascinating to me. Like, it would, be, it would make sense if John recorded his own story about how Jesus was directing his life, but it's interesting that he records Peter's story. I don't know, that's just Char's brain right now, what I'm thinking about. But just so fascinating, this private conversation between Peter and Jesus as they're walking along. Jesus says, Peter, when you were young, you did whatever you wanted. But when you are old, you will be taken where you do not want to go. And, G- and John, he comments that Jesus said this, signifying by what death Peter would glorify God. Now, church history tells us that Peter was crucified. And in some traditions, it tells us that he was crucified upside down. I don't know if that's true. But that Peter was crucified. And so Jesus is specifically talking to Peter about his own death and how even in his own death, Peter will imitate his Lord. He will have an identity with Jesus throughout his whole life, even to his final breath. Now, that's beautiful in some ways, and God, that is frightening when you think about your own death or final breath. And what Jesus is asking from Peter is saying, Peter, are you surrendered to me? Do you trust me? Are you surrendered? Now, rarely are such direct correlations in our day, but make no mistake, to follow Jesus is real surrender. To surrender your own will your ego, your preferences, your aspirations, what you think is wrong or right, fair and just, to His will, to His authority, to His loving direction. This is what it means to be surrendered. What I have found in my short time of following Jesus is that Jesus often wants to go places I do not want to go. Jesus wants to lead me into seasons of surrender. I think, honestly, for most of my Christian life, I have felt out of control. 
I hope that that is some comfort to some of you. Because I do think there is this picture that like, oh, at some point in time I will settle into this and I will be at peace and my life will calm down. Not really, no. You know, 15 years pastoring in the Bay Area and I thought, you know, one of these days everything's going to calm down, have a normal church community and a normal life. It never happened and it just, the chaos continues. I do wonder if the chaos continues so that we might be surrender to the Lord. I'm thinking about this uh, idea that God is always leading us into those places of uncomfortability, that we might be surrendered to His will and to His direction so that He can actually accomplish His good purposes in us and through us. Because I would never do that to myself. I like myself too much. I like being comfortable, right? And so do you. And I don't, I, like, I want to change, but I don't want to change that much because that's hard and it hurts. To forget myself, my mission, my purpose, my identity, and to receive his self his mission, his fullness, that's where the life is. That's where it is. In obedience, repentance, and deep surrender. That's the life in his name. So here is Jesus' great offer to the world. If anyone thirsts, are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you tired of you? Are you tired of trying to make a name for yourself, purpose, meaning for yourself? Are you disillusioned with the world? Well, Jesus, come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. See, whether you are hearing this for the first time or you are hearing it for the hundredth time, Jesus offers to fill you up to overflowing and to give you such incredible meaning and purpose through him. That each of our lives, however small and insignificant they might seem, would be conduits, vessels to carry God's living water, God's very life, to a thirsty and empty world. Will we accept Jesus' offer today to center or to recenter our lives around him and have life in his name? Or just the way I was thinking about it this morning, mornings where I just feel tired, where I feel like I don't have it within me, will I choose Jesus' offer? Will I choose it? Jesus offers it. Will I choose it? Will I step into that? Will I receive life in his name?